bum bum bottom 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 bum bum
the concept of sibling love. Mm. We've only covered couples, romantic couples on the podcast so far. Lisa's given me a look. Is that not true? I think it's true. We did a non-canon episode um, with Liz Reed yes. of Cuddles and Rage about um, Umbrella Academy. And yes. we did discuss sibling relationships there. Good memory, Lisa. Uh, that was for Awesome Con. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we did that little video. Uh, maybe I could put the links in the show notes to that episode as well. But this is going to be our first time truly digging into sibling dynamics. On the main feed. And, you know, it's a topic that's fascinating to me as an only child. I'm sure my only childness has created the Brad that I am. I think I would be a different person if I had a brother, a sister, or a few of them. Um, but I tend not to think that way because I'm an only child. But Lisa, like for you, do you feel like you are who you are because you're a middle child? Yeah, I feel very much defined by my siblinghood. And it actually came up today because we, Brad and I have a repeated argument about um, Brad making plans without running things by me. And <laughs> like, and I think that- It that, might've been about this very episode. <laughs> and um, I think that, that um, part of that is that I, like I am one of four children and I feel the need to run any decision I make by as many people as possible in, in the desire to be least like intrusive right. and most accommodating to everyone. So like I, every time Brad is like, Oh, I, I wanted to do it this way. And this is how we're going to do it. <laughs> and I like, I'm aghast every time. Yeah, And I think I have to recognize that, that a uh, very, uh, authoritarian, uh, that very authoritarian, why can't I say authoritarian? Authoritative. authoritative. That authoritative, authoritative mm. uh, point of view that I have stems from the fact that uh, I got what I wanted as a kid. <laughs> you know, my parents were very kind, and I don't know if I would say that I was spoiled, but I'm sure Lisa would say that I was spoiled. And, and, and I think... I think it comes out in those kinds of ways where I will make programming decisions without asking my partner <laughs> what she thinks. Right. But I, that's just one example. Oh, and no. I know that there are ways that I am influenced by my siblinghood that I don't even really understand yet. Mm -hmm. And so that's what gets me excited about talking Ninja Turtles because they are such a, like a unique example of siblinghood but i think it's like the perfect metaphor for what siblinghood truly is mm. like 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 the ninja turtles were created just completely out of happenstance they happened to be four turtles and a rat in the same time at the same place at the same time they go through this extraordinary experience and because of like just like proximity, they are now bound by something that is like undescribable and ineffable and just like um, implacable. Like it cannot be their, their brotherhood cannot be undone. Even if like even if Raphael was like I'm out, I quit, I'm no longer a Ninja Turtle, he would still have to consider that his brothers are out in the universe. And and like to me like. Yes, 
all of my siblings have the same parents, but in the grand scheme of things, we are just six randos. You're scattered to the wind now, too. Oh, yeah, that is true. So. Whereas, like, the Ninja Turtles are defined by their brotherhood as a franchise. Yes. And, you know, the status quo constantly demands that they remain together as brothers as a and as a close family unit. In a proactive way. In a proactive way. They have way. to work at their closeness continuously. Yes, yes, yes. And 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 I'm so excited to dig into that relationship and how it collides uh, against each other throughout the many comics and this movie we're about to discuss. But we really do need to bring on our guest today. I'm uh, so excited. Again, if you have listened to our Kevin Eastman episode, the majority of that episode's introduction was about Brian Young, the turtle dork. Our good friend and co-host of the In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast, he is, I think, and you know, I, I'm willing to check my notes. I'm willing to go online and see if this is true or not. But I do believe that Brian Young at the Turtle Dork on Twitter is the world's biggest Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan. Brian, is that true? I would say... You are correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, if it's not literally true, in my heart it's true, and that is my whole world. No, no, no. Like, uh, Brian and I, uh, now correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but I think we met for the first time 20 years ago on the yes. set of a movie we were making with Paul Petrick called yes. Peyton Doves. Don't yes. look it up. Don't look it up, people. Please don't watch it. Um, it is available in, in certain dark areas of the dark web. Uh, uh, we met on, on that movie uh, also with uh, our buddy Darren Smith. I think you knew Darren before I did. Yes. Um, but on that set, one of the first things I knew about you was that this is the guy who loves Ninja Turtles. And because of that, I knew we were going to be good friends. Yeah. I think the first thing most people learn about me is that the fact that I'm a huge Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan <laughs> that has gone all the way back. I'm trying to remember where it began because you know, like a lot of times people ask like, what got you into this? Like, what was that one thing? And, and I was thinking about this earlier today and I couldn't pinpoint exactly what it was. Now, like you guys were talking about, I think, uh, well, I know that I came to the Turtles through the 87 animated show. So it wasn't through the comics, the original comics by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird uh, that started in 1984, but it was through that animated show. But I want to think, I, I want to say it was like around elementary school, maybe middle school, sixth, seventh grade. But I don't remember like what drew me to it to make me such an obsessive fan that everybody in my school basically knew me as the turtle fan to the point that like when you you know like when you have your yearbook and you would pass your yearbook around and people would just write stuff. You have that that section of your yearbook um, where people would like write things at the end of the year. I remember leaving middle school in eighth grade, going into high school and 
every single person that every single person in my class and around the school that wrote in my yearbook mentioned something about the turtles. And I remember specifically, I can't remember the person, but someone said, uh, good luck to you. Don't talk about the Ninja Turtles when you get to high school. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Brian, did you heed that advice? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Brian, like, you know, so... It, it sounds to me like Ninja Turtles is like Star Wars is for me, where it just mm. was always there. You don't yeah. remember like the first frame of the cartoon you saw, or was it a Ninja Turtles toy, or was it some kid on the playground no. that had a T-shirt? No, I can't. I, I wish I could because that would be a great story to tell. But it just feels like it's just always kind of been a part of my youth and my life. I, I, I know that's the case for me as well. I can't remember the first time I encountered the Ninja Turtles, but I know it was through the cartoons. Mm-hmm. And I know it really took off through collecting the action figures, those oh, Playmates yes. toys. Let me hear about your collection, Brian. Oh, my goodness. Now, back in those... I'm, I'm dating myself, but um, uh, look, I, we're I'm all 40. old men here. Yes, Except we're all Lisa's old men. A, a young, fresh lady. <laughs> but yeah, man, it's... Cra- edit Robert. that out. Edit, edit that out. That out. No, okay. I'm joking. <laughs> edit that in twice. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, no, man. It um, it started back the well, of course, the late '80s, and I would say one of my favorite places to go to my go-to place was KB toys. Mm-hmm. Um, KB toys. I would go to all the time and pick up all the fl- playmates. They, they had it on lockdown. I, I loved going to KB's and picking up all the different turtles. I had, of course I had all the turtles. I had splinter. I had, um, I, I wish I could remember some of their names, but I had the frog character. I think there was another character named Sergeant rock that I had, I had that oh, one as uh, well. What the heck? It's not Sergeant Rock, but it's that rock alien dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I know I'm blanking out on, on some of the names, and that, that might take away some of my cred as no, the, the, no, the no, biggest no. Ninja Turtles fan. But I used to just obsess every single time I would go to KB's. I knew exactly where to go. As soon as you walk in, it's to the right. It's the aisle all the way at the end, and they were all they were on. They were uh, up on the right side, and I would just make a beeline to the turtle toy and just go ahead and I would never forget one time like I would get an allowance from my mother and I remember going to KB's and for some reason I want to say that she told me not to spend my money and they had the April O'Neil figure and (laughs) I went and bought it and I immediately had like buyer's remorse because I could hear my mother's voice telling me not to buy anything (laughs) and I bought it and I went immediately right back to KB's and returned it because I, in fear, I was going to get in trouble. And then, like, when my mother found out I bought it and returned it, she was like, no, you could have bought it. It's like, and I was like, oh, my God, I could have had my April O'Neil toy. And I never had an April O'Neil to- uh, uh, figure uh, because I had, I had it in my hand and bought it and returned it. And I was like, oh, I wish I would have kept that. <laughs> uh, Brian, the frog character is Genghis Frog, the the Playmates version. Uh. But the Nika version had published, or published, made two, which was Rasputin and Genghis Frog. And then the Rock guy, I can't remember what the Playmates called him, but the Nika toy is just Rock Soldier. Rock Soldier, okay. 
Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna need to look some of those up because I I remember all of those figures that I had back in the day. Like there is a deep desire within me to start recollecting the Playmates Ninja Turtles figures. Uh, you know, like I loved the original brothers, but it's some of those other characters like Man Ray and Slash. Like those oh, are the ones that I Slash I had. Yes. I like Slash. Slash so much that when I got my second box turtle as a kid, I named that turtle Slash. <laughs> nice, nice. I like it. I the like first it. turtle was named Big Al after Judge Reinhold's uh, turtle from Beverly Hills Cop Two. So that's where I, I'm coming from. Now, I would also, I would also like to like maybe kind of direct your listeners to um, the episode of the toys that made us yes mm-hmm. on netflix um darren you just mentioned darren uh i was over at his place one time and he showed me that episode also the episode for um uh, power rangers as well because i'm a huge power rangers fan um and you know those those fandoms cross pollinate so you know the, the turtles and power rangers but that that's a, that's another story anyway but yes <laughs> the toys that made us they have a great episode about playmates and the origin of those toys and and how that how that just kind of took off in the mid to late 80s and brian like what was it about the ninja turtles like have you seen a psychiatrist have you discussed (laughs) why these characters spoke so um intensely to you as a person I think it kind of, it, it's hard to say, and you're right, I probably do need to talk to my, my therapist about that, <laughs> but you know, it's, I don't really know exactly what it was as a child that drew me to them, but as I got older, I think maybe subconsciously, it was something that to go to what you guys were talking about earlier with that siblinghood, and it's just that, that brotherhood between the four turtles, and what you guys were saying about you know, uh, being an only child compared to, you know, for Lisa being the middle child and for myself being the youngest, it's a, there, there's a certain way that you kind of go through the world where you have to have more consideration. Um, and not saying that people who don't have siblings don't, but it's just something that is always in the back of your mind where you always have to think about someone else. Um, especially like in terms of, you know, with your parents and how you're kind of maybe being perceived or the things that you may get and things like that. I think there is a, not necessarily a responsibility, but there is a responsibility there, especially as you get older. But there is a also a, a, a consideration factor that that is always kind of taken into account as far as like, you know, the thinking of someone else that you have you know, as far as, you know, being a part of your larger family. And I think that's always kind of been a core essence for me um, as I kind of walk through my life and also kind of looking at that uh, as a correlation with, you know, my love that I have for the turtles. And it really just kind of, kind of comes down to that brotherhood. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll get more into that as we talk about the movie, which, you know, I definitely have a, you know, a lot of thoughts with that first film, the 1990 film. Growing up, I was not a fan of the Ninja Turtles. Like I, I was peripherally aware of it. I had watched it some at, at friends' houses, but I really didn't even consider taking the Ninja Turtles seriously until 
getting close to Brian Young. And it was really watching the 1990 film that, that like, first I go like, oh, I see why this is such like a Brian movie because it yeah. really is about loyalty is a choice. You have to reaffirm that you are part of this family. You have to reaffirm, I am here for you. You are here for me out of principle, it's, like not just out of circumstance, but out yeah. of, out of active, like this is the right thing to do. Yeah. It's sort yeah. of what we were talking about in our last couple's session episode on Angela and Sarah, how when you are in a romantic relationship, even you have to continually choose the other. You have to re-up. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to uh, engage with the reasoning you got together in the first place. And do you want to keep doing it? Are you the same people? No. Do you want to be with this new person? So I feel like with the 1990 film, we get this contrast of types of families. Like, so we have our Ninja Turtles and Splinter and that is contra contrasted with the Foot Clan, where the Foot Clan, they try to impress upon them, we're a family. We are, we are doing this for each other. We are doing this so that we can indulge in the things we want to indulge in. Mm -hmm. We can all get something out of this. And I think that part of siblinghood is you are part of it even when it costs, even when it's hard, even yeah. when... Even when it is a sacrifice every day, you are re-choosing it. Like it is, it is not for anyone's gain that you are a brother. And I like that you mentioned that too, because now even thinking about that, and I, it's always been there in the film, but you can see that through the character of Danny. Yeah. You know, um, with him longing for some type of familial connection and because of the strained relationship that he has with his father he's drawn to the foot clan because you know he's lacking that familial co connection that it seems like he's seeking but he's lashing out in a bad way you know tr uh, you know doing these petty crimes and things like that and it's not until later in the film when he realizes what he's doing and he can finally you know connect with the turtles and to see that love and connection and that loyalty through their relationship when he starts to come around and, and can build that connection with his father. And maybe it's because of my age, but this last time watching it, Lisa and I watched it last night, I was engaging with Charles, uh, Danny's dad, in a okay. way I never had before. And okay. there's that scene after Charles picks up Danny from the police station because Danny was caught with some stolen goods. And he's like, why do you even need a car radio? Like Charles cannot help himself. He, he can't find a way to connect with his son. That's not from a place of confusion. Mm -hmm. He's mm. and, and that confusion of who is this child in front of me. Uh, it, 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 it creates tension and his response and it creates anger. And, and he is struggling so hard to get beyond his anger in with his relationship with Danny. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and, you know, that's why like at the end of the film, he kind of comes around maybe a little too quickly, but I'm so glad that we do get that moment between Charles and Danny where you go like, okay, they're going to work it out. They're going to, they're going to continue. I do yeah. relate to Danny though. Like I feel like as a sibling, like sometimes it's hard to like put my finger on like 
what do I need to feel loved? Like, what do I need to feel loved by my parent? Do mm-hmm. I need a new skateboard? Do I need like a pat on the back? Do I need him to come home from work earlier? Maybe he like, because he's a newsman, he's always on. Maybe I need more of that quality time. Like, and I think that especially like when you're a sibling, you want to make sure that you also get something special. Like I want, I want a special relationship with my parent, something that is different than like, which is something that I see with the turtles and their connection to Splinter, where they all want to be loved by Splinter specifically for, for something that is innately them. Ah, but Danny, from what I can tell, he's like Brad, he's an only child. Mm. He just Mm. wants Charles to talk to him about the sex pistols because he keeps wearing (laughs) like every version of Sid Vicious t-shirt. He just (laughs) wants to have a conversation about the things that he likes with his dad. As a person who was briefly into the sex pistols, I will say that that in and of itself is a cry for help. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. right. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting too because I also kind of look and I'm I'm kind of because I didn't rewatch the film for the podcast although I have seen this movie a million times so I I should know it if I don't you know how dare me (laughs) but I also while we're talking I see a little bit of a correlation as well between Danny as an only child and and him lashing out and also with Raphael Mm. in this in this movie with him also being a part of you know this family that has three brothers and a father but the way that he's lashing out where he's almost kind of pushing his family away and the duality between those particular characters and how that works within the film I, I think is kind of beautifully done especially like what happens when uh, Raphael is kind of, you know, beaten almost to death and that being caused, well, I want to say it was caused by Danny, but it was, Danny was the one that kind of led the Foot Clan to where the turtles were um, at, you know, April, April's uh, house, uh, antique shop and whatnot. But I, 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 I like that comparison, kind of like looking at those two characters with two completely different family dynamics, but kind of walking a similar path. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have transitioned so naturally and seamlessly into talking about the, the movie, but I am an obliger, tipping up holder, and I want to establish we are now officially talking. Are we now inviting the turtles from the 1990s film onto our counseling couch. Are uh, we going to get into it? I think so. I think so. You know, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the 1990 film is such a special movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, so the comic comes out in 1984. That first issue, I think it's like 3,000 copies were printed and sold out like gangbusters. And then with like in the matter of months, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman, the creators had like a gold ticket with these characters. And as you can see in the Toys That Made Me documentary or the T-U-R-T-L-E Power documentary, which I highly recommend, it's a great documentary. It it, it really was that one guy, uh, I, I'm blanking on his name, uh, who saw the potential 
of Ninja Turtles as a toy and cartoon mm. that took the turtles to the next level in 1987. He was able to sell the toy rights. He was able to then get the cartoon based on the toy. The cartoon comes out. Brian and Brad are watching it. That's when we're becoming complete and total obsessives. And then just three years later, the movie comes out. Yes. And no one wanted to make this movie except for one guy. And it's this guy named Gary Proper, who was a surfer dude. He was a, a producer for Gallagher, the watermelon smashing <laughs> comedian. And he saw something in this property where he was like, this is going to be a great movie. But every studio said no until Golden Harvest, the Hong Kong action studio, the studio that brought us all the best Bruce Lee movies <laughs> said, yes, here's $3 million, but $3 million still was not enough. And that's when new line cinema came to the rescue and Ninja Turtles got made because of new line golden harvest and the surfer dude producer for Gallagher. And they, they, <laughs> they found $13.5 million and they made the movie. They got Jim Henson's creature shop involved to make the suits uh, Brian Henson was the lead puppeteer on these things. And the film ended up making $202 million, which was the largest gross for an independent film at that time. It was directed by Steve Barron, who was this music video director. Uh, the only film he had made before this was a, a flick called Electric Dreams. And like you watch this movie and it feels fully formed like it doesn't feel like people were just doing a cash grab like you can tell that steve Barron really loved the material and the film itself is like this beautiful blend of the comic books and the cartoon mm -hmm. yes yes and absolutely and like when it came out, I may not remember when the cartoon happened, but I remember going to the theater to watch Ninja Turtles for the first time. Brian, do you remember the first time you saw Ninja Turtles? Oh, yes. Like it was yet. Well, okay. <laughs> you talk about obsession. Now, you know, as, as kids, when we like something, we can seriously obsess over it. I definitely remember where I was. Uh, the theater I saw it at, where I was in the, uh, what seat I saw it in. I remember buying the tickets. I, that may have been the first time that I bought tickets in advance. And this was back in like 1990. So you would go up to the box office. You wouldn't go like how we buy tickets now, either on your phone or go <laughs> to like the kiosk and whatnot and have like your QR code on your phone. You would actually get a paper ticket. And I remember buying the tickets maybe like a week or so in advance. And I remember I had the tickets and I would just look at the tickets you know, in anticipation for seeing this movie, you know, every day I'd be like, hey, my ticket's right here. And I would just be waiting until that day. And I was just like, like I would place them like on the coffee table and I would just be, I would like sit there and just look at them like, oh my God, I got my tickets for the Ninja Turtles movie. And yeah, it, it sounds, it sounds pretty bad, but I was, I was just, oh yeah, I, I remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> I find it as a, as a girl who fanned over the monkeys as a child, I find it very relatable and extraordinarily sweet. <laughs> I can just imagine you fawning over these tickets, the sacred object, yes. you know, this key that's going to open this 
more <laughs> hyper realistic world where Ninja Turtles like exist. I mm-hmm. miss that era of movie tickets. You know, yes. I used to collect my tickets. I would put it Me in too. a journal. Yeah. Right. And, and and now you go to the the theater, and if you do get a ticket printed out, and it's not a QR code on your phone, it's just this like flimsy receipt paper. You know? Yeah. I miss that sturdy ticket. I do, I do, dude. I I used to. I had all of my tickets. I have like a Ziploc bag. I think with all of my movie stubs, all throughout the nineties. Like I I could I could bring up like movie stubs from like. My tickets were like Broken Arrow and everything that I everything I saw in the '90s, like every single movie, I used to just collect and save all of my movie stubs. So, Brian, what was your reaction? What was Young Kitty's reaction to seeing Ninja Turtles for that first time after so much anticipation? It, it was it was everything. It was it was literally. It, it's almost like it, it's not. It's it's not like the days now where you know it's like you you walk in and you're expecting something and then you come out and you might feel disappointed because this isn't what I wanted or anything like that. As a kid, as at, at that time I was what thirteen, maybe twelve or thirteen. This was everything that I could have asked for. Coming from the animated show in '87 and then seeing a live action version because. I, I I always was a movie fan. Like I grew up loving film. Like I just loved going into a, a, a theater, into a dark room when the lights. Like one of the one of the, one of the most adrenaline filled moments is when the lights go down in the movie theater. And I'm in a, I'm in a theater and I'm like I'm about to watch a live action version of a cartoon that I watch every day at home. And this is and they are on the big screen like it's, it's almost like that moment that like they've made it <laughs> you know it's like they, yeah. they have a, they have arrived and i just remember seeing that movie and it was everything that i could have asked for and as i've grown with the film throughout the years and rewatched it and rewatched it um i have a different appreciation for it because of like what you just mentioned you know, as I have kind of gone back and seen different iterations and have read some of the comics and some of those original comics to see how more dark and gritty that was, what Steve Barron and the production team did with that film in really balancing the tone and it not being too silly or too goofy or getting too dark. And it really... It, it's I, it, I look at it as probably one of the shining examples of a film that really balances tone well. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that maybe I, I recognized as a 13-year-old boy, but as I get older and becoming more, you know, as I learn more about film and television and things like that, and, and as your film language and your film uh, knowledge grows as you get older, I look back at that film and like, wow, they really kind of, nailed it with the tone and the balance and i appreciate that i think more than anything with what they were able to do especially being so close to the um to the origins of that property from 1984 being only six years afterwards making this movie and three years removed from the premiere of that animated show yeah what i think makes the 1990s film is the earnestness yeah that that they bring to the table when bringing bringing the story to the public where mm-hmm. i feel like cuz now i've read the first 7 issues and it is 
even more wacky. It's even more extreme. Really weird. But it is also so serious. Like, there is a little bit of that 90s slang in there, but for the most part, the brothers are on a mission the entire time. And I feel like the film really hones in on what is the, like, X factor that makes the Ninja Turtles so extraordinary. And I think that it is, like... The experience they have with the ooze is like the perfect metaphor at any age for puberty. Because you think like when you're a little kid, you go like, oh, when I hit puberty, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be hyper capable. I'm suddenly going to be so smart. And then as a teenager, you go like, when I hit puberty, I'm going to look weird. And I'm going to, like, I'm beginning to have sexual urges that, like a ninja, I have to keep in the dark because people are going to be frightened. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like like that, like, we all have ages and stages where we hit that place and we go, like, I am now a completely different person. Yeah, Yeah, Suddenly, all of my options have changed. And, like, one of the things that I find... Um, interesting in the beginning of the film is Splinter's emphasis on not being seen because I feel like as teenagers like when you have extraordinary like you go like I have a talent I am special all you want to do is be seen show the world show the world and he's impressing on them like a level of restraint that is like Herculean. Invisibility, Invisibility. Is, is key to a ninja. But you also get the sense that Splinter is maybe afraid of how the world will react to his children. But I think yeah. that that is sort of what Raphael is bucking up against in the beginning of the film, where he goes like, I I can make a difference. I could be a hero. There, yeah. are, there are things that are going awry that I, I can... Um, like I can take control of and he just he just wants to be able to make his own decisions and he really believes in his discernment that like I, I with my 15 years yeah. of you know of life I know what the world is asking for me and I want to go do it today I don't want to have to confer with my father or my yeah. three dumb brothers who are not taking anything seriously. I want to just be able to do it. And, and um, I think that that is some of the same feelings with that Danny is having and perhaps other members of the Foot Clan are having where it, where they go like, I, like, I'm ready to take the reins of my life. You're absolutely right. I think you hit it. I think you hit it right there when you said like the fact that there's a lot of pressure that's put on them. As, we have to remember that they're kids. You're right. They're 15 years old. And for Splinter, putting that pressure on uh, all four of them, especially uh, Raphael and the way that he reacts to it as far as not being seen, like you have this ability, you have this thing that you can offer the world, but you have to suppress that. But as Splinter being the father figure, he knows how the world will react to them, how the world is going to see them. But as a child, as a kid, and we always have to remember that because I think that's one of the things that we forget in the title of 
uh, of these characters. We, we some, I think sometimes we forget that teenage part yeah. is that they, they are kids. And like you were saying, the way Raph bucks up to that, how he pushes, he kind of pushes against that. Um, I think, I think is one of the themes that is so beautifully portrayed in this movie. And yeah, I, I think you hit it right. Hit the nail right on the head with that. I also wonder what Splinter is actually thinking at the beginning of this film, because the way the movie opens up is with New York city going through this silent crime wave where the foot clan are pilfering everything like and, and they don't have like a dollar figure that they are stealing they're taking no. people's wallets they're taking tvs off of fire escapes they're unloading entire trucks of electronics uh, they want it all yes. and there is you know this rumor that april is investigating of the foot clan is in new york city has come from japan has invaded our shores and are and is attacking uh, uh, the the citizenry and Splinter, you know, uh, because he was the 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 pet of a uh, of a ninja I'm that fought. Yoshi. Yeah, thank you, uh, Yoshi, who was in direct conflict with the Shredder Arokusaki. He knows, like he's he must have seen what's going on, and he knows that the shredder, or at least or, or Asaki, is about to reveal himself. But he yeah. is allowing them to do coordinated, yes, uh, uh, missions yeah. because the movie opens with them rescuing April O'Neil. So I think that yeah. he is, you know, they are kind of like he's slowly introducing them and acclimating them into their true purpose. And I think that Raphael, once he gets like a taste of it, he's like, Oh, I can just, I can just kind of take it. I got this. I can take it from here. I think one moment that really drives home the teenagerness of them. And I think that this is part of the, the fun of the movie is yeah. like how adamant Mikey is like, don't you dare put an anchovy anywhere <laughs> near my pizza. Because if I taste any kind of oily, salty, fishy umami on my pizza, I am going to lose it. And you're going to lose your job. And like where they, they um, like they have very uh, petulant and um, unsophisticated tastes. I think also their humor runs the gamut mm -hmm. of quality. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. They it, have it a teenager's sense of humor and some of yeah. the jokes are funny and some of the jokes are not. Not jokes. Yeah. And whether yeah. that's purposeful or not, it works in favor of the movie. And I love I love that too because I think we do, going back to the teenage part, we see a lot of that through Mikey. And, and Mikey was always my favorite of the four from the animated show and he remains my favorite turtle. Um... And 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 that and that grows, you know, as I see different iterations. But yeah, I love the fact that he you can see the childlike nature, you know, when Splinter, when they come back and they're trying to uh, meditate 
And, you know, uh, Mikey turns on that record and Leo and Donnie just starts dancing and the Splinter's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and even when he's talking to the delivery guy and, you know, he's he's playing with he's toying with him and talking about and not giving him the right money because he was 30. He wasn't uh, there uh, within 30 minutes and things like Clearly that. Clearly has even... never worked a service job. <laughs> no, 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 no. As a kid, yeah, you could tell he's never worked a service job. And, you know, and even like little jokes that like when they're on the farm and after they come back from uh from training and he pulls out the turtle wax <laughs> you know and, and like that little moment and he's like and Raph is like funny Mikey <laughs> and so, so like it's like I, I love that I love those little moments like that and just seeing the child like and you know with Mikey being the youngest of the four it it, it fits his character to kind of play that role so I, I like seeing that there's like one like I'm not I'm not going to say that I am like against it, but there is always one element of the film that never sits well with me. And that okay. is the character of Casey Jones and, and what and what function he serves in the story. So when we meet Casey Jones, um, he is doing some uh, he's doing some cleanup after um, Raphael has stopped a purse snatching and yeah. Raphael's allowed the. Um, the criminals to flee um casey jones is like okay now i'm gonna finish the job and i'm gonna beat these guys to a pulp and Raphael comes and goes like um you can't do that like that is now beyond yes the um be like that is taking it too far that is now now you are a criminal and <laughs> yes. i love that introduction but i really feel like it's something that i would like to explore deeper and follow through on where okay. now I feel like as the film progresses, he becomes more like a fifth turtle in a way where, yeah. and and he has that big climactic moment at the end of the film where he's talking to the Foot Clan and going like, this is not a family. What you're in is not a family. Mm. I guess the context being what I now have with the turtles from spending a long weekend with them <laughs> is a family. Like yeah. I feel like that full character arc is not like satisfied. I, I, I hear what you're saying, Lisa. Um, <laughs> however, I think Elias Coteus as Casey Jones is brilliant in the movie. Uh, now, what, what's interesting about his insertion into this story is it is very much taken straight out of the comic books. Mm -hmm, yes. the, the micro series issue, the first micro series issue that focuses on Raphael, that, that scene in the park is from the books. And the way that Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird saw that issue is they needed to address what was going on with Raphael's anger. Mm -hmm. And they thought the best way to address a character's anger is to show them a mirror and a, and a mirror that holds a dark reflection. Mm -hmm. And the way that that issue works in the series is that Casey Jones, like he's, he's like a punisher. Well, yeah, he is the, uh, he, he is very much so like the Punisher. He's in his apartment, but this is actually, this is the interesting thing about Casey Jones that differentiates him from the Punisher. The Punisher had his whole family killed by the mob and then made, you know, punishing all crime his mission. Casey Jones is just some asshole <laughs> in an apartment yeah, watching yeah. TJ Hooker way too much. Yeah. And he's watching TJ Hooker and he goes, you know what? I can do better than Hooker. I'm going to go get all my sports equipment create a costume out of it and i am going to 
brutalize crime. Mm -hmm. And when Raphael comes upon Casey Jones being a total monster, like a total dirty Harry against these individuals, he sees that just beating up criminals is not the answer. There's got to be a next step. They're stopping the crime and then we need something else. Mm. That is sort of there in the movie in that exchange but it you're right it doesn't like that conversation does not continue in the latter scenes when casey jones sees Raphael getting the crap kicked out of him atop april o'neill's apartment complex he just sees like hey that's that dude i had that scruff that that scuffle with in the park and i think that he did respect Raphael. like he came away from that exchange going like that that kid is onto something, even if he does look a little green. Right. And so in fighting the foot in the an, an, antique uh, store, mm-hmm. uh, they form a tighter bond. And mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty intense long weekend, Lisa. <laughs> uh, yeah. Brian, how do you feel about the character of Casey Jones? I, I mean, going to what Brad said, it's like at this point, you know, Ilias, Ilias Cotes is Casey Jones. Even when I see him today, I'm like, oh, Casey Jones. <laughs> um, so, you know, but as a kid, you know, I really couldn't dive deeper into those character themes that you were just speaking to. Um, but I, I agree. I think that would have been an interesting exploration into kind of taking that idea of uh of casey jones and kind of exploring that more like his his extreme nature of of justice mm-hmm. you know and saying and 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 how that affects wrath because i do love that scene uh in the park with those two uh those two thugs that he stops him from um because i, I think that shows a different side that shows what we what we've been talking about this whole episode as far as brotherhood with you know compassion um, because that is a part of, is, you know, his loyalty, compassion. I think Raph understands that, you know, you have to stop crime, but you can't take it to the point where you become the criminal. And there has to be a sense of compassion when you're trying to, uh, when, when you're trying to force justice. And I, I just think that's, that's a great scene between the two of them, which yeah, I definitely wish that we could have kind of seen a little bit more of that exploration, specifically with the Casey Jones character. But I do kind of like where that arc went. I, I like where we go with him from that first interaction with Raphael to when he does give that speech um, to the Foot Clan when he has his monologue moment. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The Foot Clan when he's uh, rescuing Splinter. I like where I like where he ends up. But yeah, I think we could have had a little bit more meat on the bone when it comes to kind of maybe fleshing out his arc with that. But yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that differentiates Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the 1990 film, from a lot of other superhero stories is the amount of empathy Mm. that it gives to the villains, right? Mm. Now, outside of Shredder, (laughs) <laughs> like Shredder is a bad dude. <laughs> yes. There's no excusing it. They don't explore his backstory in any way. He is just an evil guy. Mm-hmm. But the Foot Clan have all been manipulated. They're all missing something. There's something that society is not providing them, that the system is not providing them, that the family yeah. is not providing them, that allows for the Shredder to, you know, sneak in there and take control and manipulate yes. these people into soldiers. But even uh, you know, Master Tatsu, there mm-hmm. are moments in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where you get to see a little bit into his story. Like he is 
a person who is desperately trying to please his boss. And when it doesn't happen, that's when he like takes his anger out on the kids, on his soldiers. And I, 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 I love that the movie at the end then allows for Casey Jones to give that speech and to say like, Hey, you've done all this terrible stuff, but you can be something different. You can be something new. And I think that is also a critical element of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and something that the comic book is currently exploring in the Sophie Campbell IDW series with the Splinter Clan, that the turtles themselves can create a, a family and fill the void that the foot was filling before them. Yeah. Yeah, think, I, I, oh, you go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to reiterate what she was saying in the film with the tattoo character, um, where there is that one moment where when he fails Shredder and he walks away and looks at him, and then like when he before he goes to kind of beat up that young kid. But and you're right, just in that moment, and you don't get a lot, but there's something there with tattoo that you know maybe years ago. If, if it was not in America, but even in Japan, yeah. maybe Tatsu was one of these kids at one point, you know? Totally. And, and, and I just, and so I find that interesting as well. Something I actually didn't think about until you just mentioned that, but I, I remember that moment. And you're right, it's, it is something about, you know, the manipulation that Shredder has and, and with these with these young kids and in the way that they, now they want to please him and with Tatsu failing him and how, you know, he starts to act out, you know, in the ways that we saw kind of Danny and Raphael acting out, you know, he acts out in that way as well when he's not able to please his father. Uh, the movie, for the most part, takes the origin of the Turtles from the comic books, but it changes one element that I think alters our perception of the Shredder. And in the comics, the Shredder is actually the brother of uh, a ninja that Yoshi killed. And, Interesting. And, okay. and, and so you have a little bit more understanding of the anger that is brewing in the Shredder. And, and mm. I would love to explore that a little bit more with this character. Again, it's something that the comic books later would go on and develop greatly. And like where Saki is now uh, in the comics is in a very different place than when the turtles met him. And and I just, I, I love that the Ninja Turtles story just allows for forgiveness and evolution of character, yeah. even the most wretched people. Yeah. I've already started reading um, the book that we're using as our love expert um, for the Ninja Turtles. But unfortunately, my iPad is dead. And while you guys were talking, I was like <laughs> frantically looking up the name and title of this book. And I could not find it. And for that, I apologize. We'll put it in the notes. But her entire opening of her book is about how children act out so that they can gain favor with their parents. Mm. And I would take that idea of like even further where we act out to gain favor with our siblings, with each other, where like, even though like a family, a familial relationship is supposed to be this unconditional thing. Like I find myself constantly fearing the rejection of of my parents and fearing the rejection of my siblings at like a, like a primordial 
level, like a base yeah. level. And I think that the difference between Splinter's parent parenting and Shredder's parenting is Splinter takes the time to reiterate constantly, I am your father. I am proud of you. I love you. You are proud of each other. You love each other. You need each other. Where, um, like, with with Shredder, the idea is if you misbehave, you can be out. You can be rejected. You're, in, in fact, in competition with each other. Yeah. for to curry my favor and um like one of the like really most touching scenes to me is the scene between Raphael and splinter after Raphael has been out much later than he said yeah doing exactly doing exactly what he wasn't supposed to do and splinter knows that and instead of saying you have gone against my wishes. You have broken the rules and I am compelled to punish you or whatever. He he says like, I see you. Like I see you struggling. And and first he opens with like the dad speech of like, you know, bear in mind, um, Master Yoshi had a number one rule and that rule is to possess, possess the right thinking. Because when you possess the right thinking then you have access to your strength you have access to your knowledge you have access to peace but then he goes on to say like all of your brothers you're not the only person with anger everyone has anger what makes you what makes your your burden heavier is that you're trying to handle it alone Mm -hmm. and you have to be willing and generous enough to share your burden with your siblings. That's what they're there for. Share your burden with me, you know? And and, and I think that Danny did ne- never got the sense that, like, he, he got the sense of, oh, if I can pinch a wallet, if I can get a stereo, I can get love. But he never, he, he didn't feel that place where he could put his burden. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that scene up because I coming into this podcast, I was going to bring that up because I believe that that scene between Splinter and Raphael is the theme of the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, and from a filmmaking standpoint, it, it it blows my mind that we have this in a quote-unquote kids film where, I mean, it's, it's lit by a candle. It's one shot. Um, the music and everything, the dialogue of what Splinter is saying to Raphael, I think it's it's just a beautiful, beautiful scene. And like you were saying, in the way that he opens up, you know, he's not, you know, unlike Shredder, like you were just saying, you know, he's, it's not like, okay, if you don't do what I say, or if you do this, then you're out. It's like, no, it's like, I want to, you know, I understand what it is that you're going through. Your brothers are going through the same thing. And if you keep walking this path, you know, you're going to end up this way. You don't and you don't need to walk this path alone. It's like I'm here for you. And it's just so beautifully done. And I, I just I absolutely love that's my fa- actually my favorite scene in the movie um, is that scene is that exchange between Splinter and Raphael. I think it's just beautifully done. I love how 
that love is then explored on the farm between Leo and Raphael. Yes. Because when Raphael gets the ever loving snot beat out of him and <laughs> there's the shot in the bathroom where they have Raphael in the tub, uh, just like cooling off. And yeah. Raphael looks like a corpse. Mm-hmm. Like It's like comically terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that one shot of Raphael in the tub. You're like, that dude is dead, but he's not. <laughs> he's not. Kids, don't worry. And Leo is standing by his side. And Leo is the one who is there when Raph finally awakens. Mm-hmm. And Raph being able to see Leo there. And 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 being to rec- being able to recognize the love in Leo's eyes for him, I think is um, a critical moment, but also an extension of what Splinter was trying to say in that earlier scene. Honestly, I don't I, think that Raphael would have learned it any other way because I feel like yeah. even though he had his father's words with him, him being a- attacked by the Foot Clan on that roof by himself, by mm-hmm. himself was a fulfillment of a fantasy for him. Yes. He had the idea that if it were just me, I could handle literally anything. And then for him to be knocked completely unconscious and to come to knowing that he, like, even when he had lost control, total control of his life, he was being taken care of the un- entire yes, time, yes. even when he didn't know, well, even when he wasn't on this plane of existence because he was unconscious, he was being loved. He yes. was being cared for. He was being missed. So I yeah. think that him coming to and being embraced by his brother really drove home what Splinter was talking about of like, we're taking care of you, even when you can't see it. Like, allow yeah. It's our privilege to take care of you. Yeah, and e- even when you're pushing us away, we're going to continue to take care of you. And I, I just, I-, I-, I love that sentiment. And it- going, and also, and we see it throughout, and I-, I keep mentioning different iterations of the Turtles because we had so many, but there's always the, the that that core, those those core things that we see in all of it. And one of those is that friction between Raphael and Leonardo. And we get that in this movie as well. You know, when Raphael is questioning Leo about his leadership and things of that nature. And it's like, and to see them kind of come together through, you know, him being, you know, almost beaten to death. And then, you know, Leo being there when he wakes up and, you know, seeing that, that transition and that arc between, their relationship mm-hmm. I think is is also beautiful as well. Oh, and also how it like puts a button on the argument that they were having cuz like I don't know if it's like this with your sibling, but like f- like for me, like especially when you're children, when you are in an argument, you might not necessarily say something that you earnestly think or feel, mm-hmm. but you say the thing that will hurt. And so Donatello, so when Raphael is having another like hissy fit and storming out, Donatello is like, well, good, because we don't need you. And actually, we're Mm. we're holding like you're slowing us down. Like if you really want to truly be alone, that's fine because we'll be fine. And like the second that Raphael comes to like Donatello immediately. Leonardo. Leonardo, excuse me. Leonardo immediately wants to take that back and say like you remember that thing i said yeah. about you like that we didn't need you that was not true regret, regret. Oh, that was not God. true 
Yeah. Oh man, it's, it's getting me emotional just thinking about that. Well, I knew. I, I mean, I I know it. I've, I've seen it, but I never even looked at it from Leo's point of view. Oh wow. Yeah, that's awesome. The other element that is consistent from the very beginning of this movie to the end is a character we haven't even discussed, and that is April O'Neil. Oh, yes. You know, played brilliantly by Judith Hogue. I love yes. her so much in yes. this film. Uh, the, the news reporter who comes out of the station after reporting about the silent crime wave wearing that trademark yellow slicker mm -hmm. uh, and then is immediately attacked by Sam Rockwell, of all people. <laughs> Baby Sam Rockwell. Um, how do we feel about April O'Neil and how she is used specifically in this movie? I think April O'Neil is also the fulfillment of a fantasy They because they have been told, like, you guys have to stay in the shadows and you will never be a you what you do is the right thing to do but you will never be appreciated for it and people might reject you because of it and when april came along and they they and they you know presented themselves that as her hero but also as big scary monster types she at first was alarmed but by being around them and really seeing them and getting to know them, they could be seen and loved and appreciated. And I think also her being such a visible person and her being able to go on the news and say like, hey, Raphael, thank you for what you did in such a, like a visible way, even though nobody knew who Raphael was, it gave them that taste of like being seen and loved by by many more people yeah yeah i i like and that that interaction after um rafael saves her in the subway and when she comes to and sees them at first and you know she is a little is startled and you know scared as far as like looking at them as monsters and then she sees splinter and she calms down and splinter kind of tells her the backstory of who they are and where they came from and you know, and she's, you know, and she has that great line. She's like, I'm not dreaming. Am I? <laughs> and then like when they go, when they take her home and go to her apartment, I think that's kind of when you really start to see that relationship uh, form that we come to know between April and the turtles and, you know, Mikey doing his Mikey thing <laughs> with the impressions and things like that. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and she has, she, she has an affinity for them because, you know, like when they leave, um, you know, Leo's like, okay, we got to go because Splinter, you know, he, he starts to worry. And I just love that that moment. And she's like, well, when will I see you guys again? Mm. And it's just like, oh, it's like, okay, she's 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 in, you know, she's she's already at that point throughout that night that that in, interaction with them. Uh, she has, you know, come to accept them for who they are. And I think that also lets them know, too, as far as like what you were saying about what Splinter I was saying as far as not being seen, it's like, okay, it's like people can accept us. Yeah. You know, if, if we are who we truly, if, if we just be who we are, then people can accept us for who we are. And I, and I love that. And I also love too, as far as I love her conviction, mm -hmm. you know, when she challenges Chief Stern, you know, as far as like who the Foot Clan are and saying like, look, this crime wave that's happened in, in New York is tracked back to the syndicate in Japan. This is not just 
you know, random thugs that's, you know, uh, stealing things. This is coming from something bigger. And Chief Stern just, you know, being so, you know, bullish, refuses to, you know, to listen. And, um, and even to the point where Shredder is like, look, we got to shut her up because <laughs> she knows she knows about what we're doing. So it's like I like I like her her, her conviction and what she knows and not, you know, cowering to, you know, the police force, you know, and, and stay and stick into that. She is such an aspirational character. Like we talk about like there are no like strong female characters in superhero movies. And like, to me, like her being highly principled, her mm. being radically accepting, her being game to help. Like, hey, I've got a broom <laughs> handle. Like I can knock yeah. out a few ninjas if you if need be. Like, yeah. like, uh, like, I, I, I find, like she might be my favorite Ninja Turtle. I love her so much. <laughs> and the only problem with her is her relationship with Casey Jones. Well, okay. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I knew we yeah. were going to get there. I knew we yeah. were going to get there. I mean, we are comic book couples counseling. There is one romantic relationship in this story, yeah. uh, if you want to call it that. And it is the flirtation between Casey Jones and April O'Neil that seems to land somewhere positive by the end of the film when she's like, just shut up and kiss me, dude. Yeah. To me, like, I, like, I think that it's a terrible message to say <laughs> that um, you can fall in love with someone despite finding them repulsive. Like, I feel like that's a terrible precedent to set. Yeah. Um, also, I like, um, I do feel like Casey Jones is, in the context of this film, a dynamic character, yes. right? Yeah. Like, if yeah. you pinpoint, like, uh -huh. like, what he would choose, to, his principles at the beginning of the movie versus the principles at the end of the movie. Yeah, see, he does have a little bit of <laughs> But, like, the fact that they're at odds the entire time, right up until, like, her going, like, why aren't you kissing me without yeah. consent right now? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, yeah. it is that cliche, you know, kind of it's like his girl Friday. Kind of. Well, I, would, I mean, I think it goes way back to, like, screwball comedies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. where, mm -hmm. like, you're arguing with each other, and then suddenly you're making out. Like, it is a fallacy. I agree. There are moments in that barn, or not the barn, but at the farmhouse, where Casey Jones is being aggressive and gross in yeah. a heinous way. Yeah. And you would, if you were in that room with him and her, you would not let it happen. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, like the, uh, Donnie, Donnie says it good. It's kind of like moonlighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's what the movie is trying to do, is to replicate yeah. that will they or won't they kind of dynamic. Mm -hmm. And yeah. in hindsight, we're where we are right now, it doesn't look good. No, no. That being said, as a kid, I was into it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that dynamic. I, I, I see what you were saying, Lisa. And I was thinking about that, too. And, you know, I, sometimes I always, like, I always struggle when – because. You know, me and Brad are always on Letterboxd, and you know, I I, I give this five stars. You it's, got it's one to. Of, you got. It's you one. Got it's to. one of my top. It's in my top ten movies of all time. I love this film, but I can say that there are certain things that have not aged well, and that I can kind of 
poke holes and have some criticisms about. So um, it is a perfect movie, but you know maybe there's that other like margin where you have a perfect film, but you still have some criticisms mm, about. I mean, it, let's so. be honest. Like <laughs> you, you know, we're not here to talk about the nature of cinema, but there's no such thing as a perfect movie. That's I, true. I really That's don't true. think there is. Uh, but because of where we were when we saw Ninja Turtles, and exactly. because of the quality of the film and how it has hold up. Like you, I can go back and watch other movies that I was deeply in love with as a kid yeah. and watch them today and go like, Oh, I can't, I can't follow you anymore. Like the obsession yeah. has to end, but Ninja Turtles, despite some squidgy moments, I think mm -hmm. still really holds up as a great film. And then one thing I can say about Casey Jones is we know that, he will wear protection because he's clearly wearing a cup at all times. <laughs> he's like on the farmhouse and he's with the sweats on and man, his cup is like, it, Oh my goodness. It's it a so dome. distracting. And I think it must be because he's about to do his own stunt of breaking the, the swinging chair. I mean, I think that that's something that I, I mean, I didn't see the movie as a child, but uh, like I had, like I, I, I spot that cup every single time. I find it very distracting. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is. It, it is distracting. I was like, yeah, like sweatpants. You don't, you don't wear sweatpants that way. That, that's not. Yeah, that's not the way you wear them. <laughs> <laughs> so, what have we not talked about regarding Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the nineteen ninety oh, film, that we would want to get in before we wrap up this conversation? Man, I want to say we maybe went through um everything i mean the only other thing that i liked and appreciated and i want to maybe see more of whether it's in another movie or a tv series or whatever the case or they I'm, I'm pretty sure they explored this in the comics and you know i, I mean i haven't read all of the comics there's a lot I, there's a lot there's a lot but I love like the relationship between Amato Yoshi and Orokosaki. Yes. And we get a lot of that in the flashbacks, um, as far as like it being kind of like this love triangle, um, if I'm not mistaken. But I yes. would love to see that relationship between Orokosaki and Amato Yoshi explored deeper. And I think that also kind of goes directly if you're looking at brotherhood you go from the relationship between the, the two of them going into the relationship with the turtles. I think there's also a correlation there as well. And I would love to see that um, like a deeper exploration into that relationship. I feel like we spend so much time in this movie, like exploring Raphael's. Yes. Uh, Raphael's character. He is the dominant personality. And, yes. and, and his relationship with Leonardo specifically. And, but like there's one scene where April O'Neil is journaling and she's talking mm. about the other brothers coping mechanisms and how Donatello distracts himself by, you know, bonding with Casey Jones and, and working on the car and, and yeah. like goofing around and, and like um, calling each other names, going through the alphabet. <laughs> the so alphabet yeah. And, and like, <laughs> I, and I feel like we could like, this is not the direction the films go, unfortunately, but I mean, or fortunately, I don't know more movies, who knows? Um, But like, I would love 
a film tackling each brother's insecurities and really exploring yeah. what brings each brother back to the Ninja Turtles. Because I, I know as a sibling, like there are times where I, um, where I try to differentiate and separate. And I, and I, th yeah. and I feel like, um, I, and I feel like that's something a lot of people can relate to. And I, and I, I, like, I feel like in stories, I look for examples of siblings reconnecting and reaffirming, you know, yes. like either siblings are at odds or there is, or they're best pals. Like to me, I like the, that, um, that give and take is like the rubber banding. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think like each person has their own coping mechanisms with the, the trials and the great privilege of of being a sibling. I, I agree. And I think that, again, going to maybe some of the shortcomings that I've seen uh, in, in rewatches over the years is I, I wish we would have gotten more with Donnie and Mikey, mm -hmm. because I think um, you're right. The Raph kind of, you know, is, is the dominant personality in this film. And, you know, Leo is right there because he's in direct conflict with Leo and with Splinter as well with his father. But, um, and Mikey gets his moment and Donnie gets his moments. But sometimes they feel like kind of tertiary characters where I think that we um, th there's a lot of there's a lot more to be explored. I mean, they, they do get their moments with that scene um, as far as talking about the coping me mechanisms on the farm. Um, but that's kind of through uh, that's kind of seen through April. But I would love, like you were saying, to see more um, with Donnie and, and Mikey, because Mikey's always my favorite. And, and, and I think there is something deeper that can be explored with him being the youngest because I think there is something with him with, with being the youngest sibling and um, sometimes not being heard or there's another level there as far as maybe not being seen as being the youngest sibling um, not just being seen on the grander scale of you know having to hide from the public but also maybe not being seen within your own family mm. or not being taken seriously. Right. Which that pressure might, to entertain yeah. as opposed exactly. to like, like to entertain, to deflect from his pain. Yeah. Or, and feeling like that maybe you have something more to offer, you know, because, you know, Donnie is like the tech guy and Leo's the leader and Raph is sometimes the muscle when you look at different iterations. And, you know, sometimes Mikey feels like, or may feel like he's left out, but you know, trying to prove that he has something to offer. I think there's a, a, a breadth of story that, that could be told with that and from Donnie's point of view as well. So um, just one of the slight shortcomings, but it doesn't take away from my enjoyment. But I do wish that Mikey and Donnie had a little bit more um, in, in the film. But yeah, yeah. The scene between the two of them waiting for the pizza, it's brief, but brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah, you're right. The you're thing right. that I would just want to highlight about this movie is the turtles themselves as characters, as people that we react to. It, it, it takes seconds. And even actually, that's, it's not even true. Like at this point, we turn the movie on. And I am looking at Leonardo, Raphael, Donatello, Michelangelo, and Splinter the way I'm looking at Judith Hope, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and mm -hmm. that is a miracle because those <laughs> turtles to come to life 
requires so many people. We we haven't talked about the voice cast at all. Brian Tochi as Leonardo, Josh Pace as Raphael, Corey Feldman as Donatello, yes. Robbie Rist as Michelangelo, and Kevin Clash as Splinter. They mm. are great. Like it's it's a great vocal performance. Yes. But I also just want to highlight the in-person people who are actually making these movements work. And mm-hmm. it's not just the people in the suit. It's the people uh, running the animatronics, the, the facial assistants. And yep. those are David Foreman for Leonardo in suit, Martin Robinson as the facial assistant, Leif Tilden as the in-suit performer for Donatello. And then we have David Rudman, Ernie Reyes Jr., Reggie mm. Barnes as uh, facial assistants and the in-suit martial arts stunt double. Ernie Reyes Jr., of course, goes on to be an actual character yes. in Ninja Turtles 2. And uh, Reggie Barnes is the in-suit skateboarding double. There's like that one shot in the sewer of Donatello yeah. on the skateboard, and that's him. Josh Pace is the voice of Raphael, but he is also the in-suit performer. David yep. Greenway is Raphael's facial assistant. And Ken Torum is the martial arts stunt double for Raphael. Uh, Michelin Sisti, I'm butchering your name and I apologize, is the in-suit performer for Michelangelo. Max Wilson is the facial assistant for Michelangelo. And the puppeteer for Splinter is also Kevin Clash. Our, uh, Ricky Boyd is the facial assistant for Splinter and Rob Robert Tigner is the assistant puppeteer for Splinter. So like, that's a ton of names yes, to bring these roles to life. And I don't think about any of them when I'm watching the movie. <laughs> no, you, you don't. And that's a testament to their work and kudos to them. And we definitely want to give them recognition and their props because they did a fantastic job with making these characters feel like, real characters and not just physically but emotionally and uh, as well so yeah kudos to them for that and it's also a, yeah. like a beautiful example of like if you know someone's story you can empathize with anyone yes if our heart yeah. can break for Raphael the turtle yes. like mm-hmm. uh, like all we need to do is learn someone else's story and we will root for them like, I think that they're like, like they're just a, an example of um, how um, radical human empathy can be if we just allow ourselves to know a story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not here to like hate on the latter uh, day or the modern day Ninja Turtles movies, the CGI ones that Michael Bay produced. Uh, yeah. I I think they actually have some interesting qualities to them as well. Same, same. Uh, when I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking about the tremendous um, stri- strides we've made in technology regarding suits, like I'm watching Rings of Power right now and looking at the orcs in Rings of Power, these guys mm-hmm. in latex and makeup, I would really love to see a studio make a Ninja Turtles movie using some kind of dudes in suits mixed with some digital enhancements i'm with you man i I wish i I wish for those days i I, i'm hard pressed to say that we'll ever get those days again i I wish we would because i think it can be done um rings of power has proven it yeah yeah so maybe fingers crossed i know we're getting the animated movie uh, produced by seth rogan can't wait it's point great production so 
yeah, I'm looking forward to that because I'm curious to see. I mean, I like most of the things that Seth Rogen and his company has produced. The boys have been great. So I'm curious to see what he does with this. I'm cautiously optimistic. But at this point, with cinematically, I don't think there's anything that comes close to this version, the 1990 uh, first film uh, of the Turtles. And, you know, the sequels have their have have their have their shining moments for me. But nothing can touch this this movie, this 1990 film. I mean, the Ninja Turtles franchise is fascinating because reboots and remakes and reiterations are baked into its DNA. You know, going from the comic to the cartoon to the 1990 movie. And then we've mm-hmm. had so many sequels and we've had so many different cartoons. Yeah. And I've watched bits and pieces of all of them. And I think all of them are pretty interesting and varied from each other. Very much so. They're very different, which I can appreciate, and they never lose um, the core of what the Turtles are. And that's the thing that I appreciate as a Turtles fan who loves the Turtles because of that brotherhood and loyalty and familial connection. All the iterations that I watch always keep that premise at the core, which is what I appreciate. And I, and you know what? Before we go, I do want to direct you, you guys and to your listeners as well that the rise of the TMNT, the, the show that was on Nickelodeon, that's it's more kid friendly, but they released a film on Netflix. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not long. It's about 120 minutes, 20 something. It's less than less than 90 minutes. But I watched that and that movie everything that we've talked about and everything that I love about the turtles is in that film, even though it is a completely different and radically different interpretation of who the turtles are, because the turtles in this, in this version have like mystical powers and things of that, of that nature. But that what we've been talking about as far as like familiar connection, empathy, compassion, brotherhood, loyalty, all of that is baked into that film and I absolutely I, I and I never watched that series and I went right into that movie and I absolutely loved that film. Awesome. Um, so I, I would I would definitely recommend uh, watching that movie and the way we talked about how Raph kind of dominated for the 1990 film that rise of the TMNT animated movie on Netflix really focuses on Leo and his arc. Um, but it gives all the other brothers great moments. And it, yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that movie a lot. Surprisingly enjoyed that movie. I have not watched that film yet, but I'm totally going to do so. Uh, I yeah. do like the cartoon. I agree that it is very cartoony and yes. it's off kilter from a lot of other previous interpretations of the Ninja Turtles, but it's also a very geeky and cinematically (laughs) obsessed show there are so many references there is a visual gag a nod to my neighbor totoro in it that delights me to no end Um, so there are there there's reasons to watch that series yeah Um, yeah we are comic book couples counseling and i think we've reached the portion of the episode where we need to reflect on not just the ninja turtles but what the Ninja Turtles have given us over the years and maybe what this conversation has helped us realize about ourselves. Brian, you've talked a little bit about this already, what the Ninja Turtles have given you throughout your entire love affair with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe you could boil it down. Like, what have you learned about you? What have you learned about the turtle dork from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? 
Um, for me, and I, I just kind of look at like my life and just who I am and who I continue to strive to be. Um, um, and, and sometimes I fail and sometimes I, you know, I succeed at it, but it's just being, just being more compassionate towards other people. Um, and like, and showing, uh, empathy, um, but also having to kind of, I want to say manage that, but not, have so much where I kind of lose myself in it, where I can kind of have that being taken advantage of, you know, but understanding that, um, you know, being, being loyal and being compassionate and having empathy to the people around me, um, regardless of, uh, maybe some of the friction that I may have with, with people or not, but you always just want to always be compassionate and be there for people when they uh when 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 they need it for me like from this conversation in particular and reflecting on the 1990s movie like um some i am like Raphael in that like when i'm feeling anxious or when i'm feeling overwhelmed my tendency is to turn inward partly mm. out of fear of like well, like I had this issue the other day where I was going out, I, like I was at a very overwhelmed place and I was uh, like about to go hang out with a friend. And, and I told Brad, like, I'm afraid to go hang out with this friend because what can I talk about? Because all I, all I'm feeling is overwhelmed and I don't want to tell this person that, right. I don't, I don't want to overwhelm that person. Like, so yeah. like, I, like I fear of sharing my, my burden that way, but then also going like, well, I am overwhelmed. I don't want to take on anyone else's burden where it's just like, I'm already like a 10. And, and if I, if I reach out to this person or that person that they might take me to 11 where I feel like what Splinter yeah. is saying is that when you have familial togetherness, whether it's your chosen family or your literal family, it will all level out. Like the idea, like the great, like the more involved your support network is, the more mm -hmm. evenly distributed everyone's burden is. Well, that means sometimes like, you know, you're less carefree than you would be otherwise. Yeah. But when you are at a 10, maybe your community can bring you down to an eight. And I did go out with that friend and I did like try to withhold, <laughs> withhold my burden from her. But then we yeah. did end up having an exchange and just having that togetherness with her was an, enough of a release to like be a reset. Like that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I, I completely agree with all of that. Like it, community, community is a big part. Cause you're, you're right. Cause sometimes you're at a 10 and having that connection, whether it's with your chosen or your natural family, I, I think you said that beautifully. Because I, I agree. I mean, whether it's it's your friends, um, yeah, I, I agree with that. That was beautifully said. What I love about art is that once the story is written, once the movie is made, it is that. But you yourself change, mm. you age. And in, in the aging, you return to that art and you see in that art something new. 
And I think for me on this watch of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, uh, you know, I'm in a place where I am trying very much to combat the um, instant frustration that occurs when I encounter someone who is behaving or saying something that I immediately object to. And it sends me to an angry place. It, I, I turn Raphael instantly. <laughs> and what I enjoyed about this watch of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was seeing how these brothers do antagonize each other, uh, but also try through their bond of family, through their um, unconditional love of each other, they try to reconnect with each other. And that can't always be the case depending on subject matters. I'm, yeah. You know, there are situations where you can't go all the way with a family member and a particular type of thinking. But I think where I'm at right now is at that place where I do want to fully consider the foot clan or fully consider uh, Raphael before I dismiss them or remove them from my life. And that's what I loved so much about Ninja Turtles was, yes, that bond between those brothers and that struggle between those brothers, but also them seeing the Foot Clan and going like, there's another way for you and we can help you. Yeah. I, I just... Like I, the the last few moments of it, I really wish the film blew that up even more. Yeah. But I'm surprised it's happening at all in a 1990 film. I I, I actually true. think there there are so many elements of the movie where we're like, oh, we wish we got more deeper into that or deeper into this. But I think that's also like a testament to how great this film is because yes. it's really piqued our curiosity. We really yeah. care. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's opening up those questions. So even the fact, like you say, even if it's in there for a moment with, with the discussion of the film it's opening up those questions for us to have it. And for a movie that's 30, what, 30, Let's not talk years about old. it. Let's not talk about it. I know. But for us to be able to still have these conversations about that film, who would have thought that this little small indie movie based on, you know, a cartoon that was based on a comic that started out as a farce would, would, you know, evoke this type of, you know, conversation with it. And I think, I, I think that's just beautiful in, in and of itself. Yeah. And I think we really have to thank Steve Barron, the director of this movie for why this film works so well for us because he recognized the quality in the comics and he recognized the quality in the cartoons and mm -hmm. he had this idea that he could make something like ghostbusters mm -hmm. that was his mm -hmm. lighthouse that's what mm -hmm. he was heading towards he, he you know he watched ghostbusters ghostbusters is so funny but there is there are stakes in that movie, not just yes. like global stakes, but there are character stakes. There yes. are real relationships. There's real love and friendship in Ghostbusters. And he wanted that for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And that balance that we were talking about being so well done earlier on in this episode, it's because of Steve Barron. Yeah, yeah. So golf clap to Steve Barron. Yes. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for hanging out with us today, talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We loved it. Thank you. Thank you guys, man. I, I appreciate it. 
You're burning. Yeah. Welcome anytime. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, th- this was awesome. It's been a long time since uh, I've podcasted. Of course, you guys kind of know my story and everything, but it's 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 been nice to podcast after it feels like forever and um so thank you guys yeah, well, i appreciate it you killed it like words of affirmation <laughs> you are so good at this you are such a delight to listen to it's really oh. a privilege now for our listeners who want to know more about the turtle dork uh, where yes. can they find you online to continue this conversation um, I do have accounts on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram, even though I'm not really that active on Twitter. Um, but definitely follow me on Instagram. I have a few accounts. I do have the Turtle Dork, um, which has kind of been stagnant for a while. But I will, I would like to direct people to um, definitely follow me on the Be Young Vi- at Be Young Video on Instagram. That's probably where I'm the most active, um, and on uh, Facebook as well at. Uh, at B Young Video, and I think I'm still at Brian William Young. <laughs> Facebook is so Facebook is so weird, but Instagram is my is my uh, media of choice. And definitely, um, if you want to see some of my some of my exploits as I go through the wedding video business, um, definitely follow me at, at B Young Video. Yes, Brian. he's an extremely talented videographer. He's a great Instagram follow. And, you know, Brian goes to San Diego Comic-Con and all these cool things. We're going to be going to Lost Weekend, the film festival at the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia. We're going to be taking photos, and I'm sure Brian's going to be posting some videos and photos of that event on his Instagram account as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, Now, Lisa. Yes. uh, After this episode, we're going to continue our couples session with the ninja turtles in at least four episodes maybe five more episodes uh we're working on some some cool possibilities let's let's just leave it at that for now our next ninja turtle episode will discuss the first seven issues of ninja turtles plus the Raphael micro series issue the one with casey jones it's all the comics that were collected in the ultimate collection from idw uh lisa has already completed her homework on that front i've got two more issues to go i'm having so much fun revisiting the early days of Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman I just love this art so much and I love the insanity of the Ninja Turtles universe like the cartoons get pretty crazy we haven't talked about Krang right (laughs) like Krang's a a nutso character and because they were making so many toys you got things like Slash and Man Ray and Rock Soldiers and whatnot but the comic book the comic book is like the cartoon on crack as far as weird stories. There's time travel, there's outer space adventures, there's Triceratops aliens. It's so weird, and I love it. So I'm very excited about that episode. Lisa, did you find our I love did. expert? I did. Um, our love expert for the Ninja Turtles will be the sib- uh, will be Don Hubner Fud. PhD. Uh, the book is The Sibling Survival Guide, Surefire Ways to Solve Conflicts, Reduce Rivalry, and Have More Fun with Your Brothers and Sisters. And the three episodes that come after the next episode will... We're, we're, we're still trying to figure out what Turtles comics we want to cover. I think the second one will involve the Archie comics, mm-hmm. where Raphael from the future goes back in time and punches out Hitler. 
I, I really want to talk about that comic book. And then the third episode will most likely be the Sophie Campbell IDW series. And then the final episode in our Ninja Turtles couple session series will be the last Ronin, uh, an apocalyptic, yes. catastrophic uh, endgame kind of story. Is the, is the, are the other turtles in the Hitler punching comics? Yes, yes, okay, they good. are. Just yes, checking. they are. The Archie comics are kind of like the 1990 movie where it's being produced by Mirage Studios, but published by Archie. So they all have like the cartoon look, but it gets really weird. Okay, I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, uh, Raphael, he's got one eye, he's from the future. He goes back in time and he punches out Hitler. You got to read that comic book. Um, and yeah, so that's going to be our Ninja Turtle series. Now, this Wednesday, Lisa and I are getting on a plane and we are going to Austin, Texas to cover the first half of the Fantastic Fest Film Festival. And we are probably going to be bringing a special episode back with us, some interviews with filmmakers. We are currently scheduling that right now. It'll be something a little bit different, something more like our Sundance episode, mm -hmm. something we have not done in three years. Right. So right. I'm very excited to return to that festival and do some in-person interviews. And uh, yeah, so and then we got New York Comic Con. It's very busy <laughs> for comic book couples counseling right now. And we're very excited to do that. Is it time uh, yeah. to do our outro? It is, Lisa. Is it time for me to whip out my segue? It is, yeah. Bring out that segue, Lisa. Bzz, 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 bzz. Hey, I'm getting a text. Uh, it's from Splinter. Um, it says, that ult the ultimate master comes not from the body, but from the mind. Oh, man, Brad, we got to go. Because it's, it's time for me to go back. <laughs> <laughs> where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you great segue lisa thank you i thought uh, of it myself you can find me on all social medias at mouth dork if you have words of affirmation for our logo you can send them to aaron prescott at a cool hand fluke if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and totally tubular show poster <laughs> send them to karen charm at karen underscore x-men fan Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I feel guilty making Brian just sit here silently through this part. No, got to. <laughs> I am always accepting. We should have done his plugs in this part. Nope, nope. I, I like the way we did it. <laughs> <laughs> I am. See, this is what I'm talking about, about Brad programming without me. Um, I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, Ooh. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. You can share our burdens and give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Wasn't that fun, Brian? That was awesome. <laughs> you're the literal best. That is awesome. That was great, man. You guys are doing it. Oh, man. I'm so, I'm so happy and proud of you guys, man. That's awesome. Thank you, Brian. We're proud of ourselves. We're going to be in a magazine. We are. Oh. We're going to be in the Northern Virginia magazine. 